I'm Josie Mitchell, and this is the Granta Magazine podcast. We have a new series out, speaking to authors about their novels, poetry, memoir, and short story collections, and also about life under lockdown. This was recorded remotely, so apologies for the shifts in sound quality. It has been a strange year, and I'm very grateful to all the authors who made the time to talk. Today, joining me will be Carmen Maria Machado, who's here to talk about her memoir, In the Dream House. It's a formerly experimental book that explores queerness and also the destructive forms that love can take. Bluebeard's greatest lie was that there was only one rule. The newest wife could do anything she wanted, anything, as long as she didn't do that single arbitrary thing, didn't stick that tiny inconsequential key into that tiny inconsequential lock. Hello, Carmen. Thank you for thank you for coming on the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk about your book, In the Dream House. It's a memoir, and it came out earlier this year. Um, I thought it was, yeah, really, really fascinating. Not just as a not just as a memoir about the experience of, I guess, uh, queer relationships and queer abusive relationships, but also formally as something that just really sort of negotiates with the memoir form in ways that I'm are really exciting. So yeah, I'm excited to talk about it. Oh, thank you. I thought what we could start with, given we're doing this remotely, is just to give a sense of where we both are, because normally we'd be doing it in the Granter office, and in this instance, this year, 2020, we're on other sides of the world. Mm-hmm. So wh- where are you? Give me a sense of where you are. Um, I'm in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in the U.S., eastern seaboard. Um, I am in my office, in my house, <laughs> uh, on the third story of my my home. And, and I'm in my kitchen, the Granta studio. And, and and what is your day-to-day like where you are? Are you, are you locked down where you are or are you at a place where you will have more ability to move around? Well, so Philadelphia is interesting because we're sort of, we're, we're actually doing, I think, relatively well compared to some other places. We are a city, we are close to New York. So for a while, we were sort of behind the curve in terms of COVID, like behind New York City, um, so like when they were like we were like it took us later to reach their peak, but I think everything's going like fairly well in the city, um, and things are technically opening back up. But I am not leaving my house. <laughs> like, I, am, I am like I I think it's stupid. Like I, it's actually really unnerving to me how many people I see walking around, and I'm like I am just gonna wait until there is a vaccine. Like I'm not. Strangest things about this sort of stage and the process is it feels like there's much more divergence between the attitude different people are taking. Yeah. Well, it's so weird because it's like, I, I mean, also, you know, we've had all these like protests about police violence. Um, and I feel like it reset people's brains in this way where they were like, that's a new thing. We've moved on from the pandemic. And now people are acting as if the pandemic was never happening, but of course it still is and is very scary to me. And yeah, I don't know. I'm just like, I'm, it makes me nervous. Like I have no intention of going outside or going to a restaurant until I believe it is safe to do so. Um, But definitely people are, I mean, theoretically a lot of things are opening back up Um, and like restaurants, I think, I think people can dine outside now, but I'm just like, nope. 
<laughs> yeah, entirely oh, fair. Um, so yeah, what we're going to be talking about is is your book, which came out earlier this year. I've got it next to me. I thought it would be nice to do a reading to introduce people to your voice. Great. Okay, so it's called Dream House as Bluebeard. Bluebeard's greatest lie was that there was only one rule. The newest wife could do anything she wanted, anything, as long as she didn't do that single arbitrary thing, didn't stick that tiny inconsequential key into that tiny inconsequential lock. But we all know that was just the beginning, a test. She failed and lived to tell the tale, as I have. But even if she'd passed, even if she'd listened, there would have been some other request, a little larger, a little stranger, and if she'd kept going, kept allowing herself to be trained like a corset fanatic, pinching her waist smaller and smaller, there'd have been a scene where Bluebeard danced around with the rotting corpses of his past wives, clasped in his arms, and the newest wife would have sat there mutely, suppressing growing horror, swallowing the egg of vomit that bobbed behind her breastbone. And then later, another scene in which he did unspeakable things to the bodies, women, they'd once been women, and she just stared dead into the middle distance, seeking some new purgatory where she could live forever. Some scholars believe that Bluebeard's Bluebeard is a symbol of his supernatural nature, easier to accept than being brought to heel by a simple man. But isn't that the joke? He can be simple, and he doesn't have to be a man. Great. Maybe we can start with the title of that section. So it was, it's called Dreamhouse as Bluebeard. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that might be a nice place to start is, is with this dreamhouse that, that becomes, that sort of forms the architecture of your book. What is it about a house that makes an appealing metaphor to build a book around? Well, I've always been very interested in houses and haunted houses in particular. Um, the Gothic has always been a genre that's really spoken to me. So this idea of sort of setting and woman set against each other um, in various interesting ways. Uh, I read Jane Eyre when I was a kid. It was very formative. Uh, <laughs> I've always been really interested in that as a, as a genre or as like a series of genres. And a house is just a really sort of beautiful and interesting space of interrogation um, that that I think proves to be like a very sort of fruitful metaphor that you can lean on in all kinds of different ways. And, you know, the house is also interesting because, you know, you think of haunted houses or the Gothic, but also the house, the space of domesticity, right, and peace. And, I mean, I guess I don't know if it's quite the same in the UK, but, you know, in the US, like a very big part of, like, the quote-unquote American dream is, like, owning a home and being in a home. And there's this real sort of fetishizing of that idea like we think of the domestic as being a very like female space and also like very heterosexual. And then you complicate it by adding sort of queer queerness into it. And you have this sort of really interesting um, little cocktail that I think is like really just, I don't know, it's like interesting. So, you know, the house just proved to be for me, the, the metaphor that like unlocked the book for me because I, I tried to write it before and I tried different forms. And for some reason, I, this was just the metaphor that I needed. One of the epigraphs you start the book with is this brilliant quote by Louise Bourgeois, where you say, memoir itself is a form of architecture. And um, that seems to, again, cut quite close to the ideas that you're exploring in the book. Was this connection between memoir and architecture there from the beginning, or was it something that developed? 
Um, well, her quote is, is, it's memory is a form of architecture. Sorry, did I not say that? Did I say memoir? <laughs> well, I mean, I think that's actually like a, a, very, a very Freudian, but it, a, yeah, it's like a very appropriate sort of slip up because I think, I think that, you know, thinking about what, what a memoir is, you know, was obviously a thing that was on my mind. And I think this book is, it's not just memoir. I mean, there's also essay. And I don't say this in terms of like putting value, like it's not just memoir, like it's, it's a lot of things. So I mean, it's memoir in the sense that there are these places where I'm sort of plumbing my own memory and my own experience and sort of kind of, you know, erecting meaning and structure from my life. And then there's also sort of parts that are less personal and are more sort of interrogating ideas, um, and, you know, like doing some sort of, dissecting certain pieces of culture and literature and film and things like that. So there's sort of a lot of stuff happening, but yeah. And so I feel like the idea that, yeah, like when you are creating a memoir, what you're doing is you're sort of digging into, into memory, but you're, you're, you're also creating something. Um, I think people, you know, a, a a common mistake people make is they think, that like memoir and autobiography is the same thing or that like an autobiography or memoir is just like, Oh, I was one day I was born. And like, here's just like a series of things happening to me until my death or until right now. Um, And that sort of, you know, that that's like sort of the limits of it, but no, like memoir is about like constructing meaning out of the sort of raw clay of memory um and and that process is very difficult (laughs) it's way harder than fiction i hate it oh that's really (laughs) interesting that you say that i'm sure it's difficult i mean i'm sure it's difficult in lots of ways like many this is a really personal topic you know and it's i I was actually really curious about i guess my question one question reading this that i was was struck by thinking of you as a very accomplished fiction writer was what it was about this story that made you want to write it as memoir or what made you feel you needed to write it as memoir? Well, so what's interesting is a thing I've discovered about myself as a writer um, is that when I want to write nonfiction about something, I need to write fiction about it first um, because fiction, I, I have a lot more leeway in fiction, obviously, because I can make things up so I can sort of, you know, I have this flexibility. I have this ability to like take real experiences and sort of use you know, like um, new characters or different characters or inverting perspectives or, you know, inventing scenarios or whatever. And I can sort of like, you know, test it in all these really interesting different ways. And and the fiction, and, and, and it's very effective to sort of do that. And then I feel like I've usually then I've created, um, like I figured out my own thoughts and then I can apply that to nonfiction. So sort of a non, an example that's not about this book is I, spent many years trying to write an essay about fatness. That was like a thing that I really wanted to do. And I was really, really struggling. And at some point, right when I was finishing up my first book, Her Body and Other Parties, which is a short story collection, I realized I didn't have any stories about the fat body. And it felt like a, like a, like a, like a notable absence. And so I decided that I would write it. And so I wrote this story about a woman who gets gastric bypass surgery and then is haunted by the ghost of the body that she loses. Um, and once I had done that, I suddenly found myself able to write an essay and I did. And I wrote an essay, um, for Guernica called The Trash Heap Has Spoken, which was the essay that I've written about the fact. I've written a few since then, but that was the first one. And it was like, I needed the fiction to help clarify my thoughts about it. And then the nonfiction was possible. It's really interesting. I think a lot of people might find that they find it the other way around. You know, they've got to sort of like journal for ages before they can 
come to something with a dramatic element of dramatic imagination? Well, imagination is never my problem. <laughs> I've, got it, I've got imagination to last me a thousand years. That's not, that's not my issue. I feel like it's like a clarity of, of vision or clarity of thought that I feel like is the thing that for me is the hard part. It's like kind of, it's like what, t- what I reigning in the imagination into a form that makes sense and like makes it makes it interesting and worthwhile I, I read a quote uh read a, an interview that you did you said something i was really interested by to do with this where you said i'm not a journalist i'm a memoirist i was really interested in how you distinguish those roles and, and maybe what the obligations are that are different for you you see i mean I, yeah i'm definitely not a journalist that is not my background in any way and it's funny I actually i took one semester of journalism classes when i was an undergraduate and i was like oh i hate this so much and i never and then I, like changed majors which is like how badly i disliked it so i mean i think journalists obviously you know a journalist has an obligation to present um but there's a lot of like sort of research involved there's a lot of like interviewing and like the point of the memoir is not to present like sort of an objective view where I'm like interviewed, like, you know, if that was true, I would have like interviewed my abusive ex, you know, and like given like her side of the story. But like, yeah, I just think like journalists have different concerns and interests and, you know, usually aren't doing personal material. Like, you know, that's the sort of a, it's actually sort of acutely like non-personal, um, you know, where there's sort of more presentation of sort of this objective quality. So like journalists are really admirable and honestly, like, good ones are amazing. And I'm really sort of, yeah, their ability to do what they do is really incredible, but I'm just, that's not my concern. It's not really my area of interest, like as a writer, like I, I have other, other things I want to be doing. It's funny. Cause I think granted there's a lot of memoir writing. It's one of the things that we really publish that, that form. And yeah. sometimes we have journalists write for us and it's really, it's really challenging trying to encourage them. As you say, they're so trained to be objective, to take themselves out of the situation. And it's a real, it's really affronting for them sometimes to be asked to bring themselves into the story. Oh, totally. Yeah. And I'm the opposite. Like I'm like, <laughs> cause I'm like, I can write on myself forever. Like that's an endless well of content. You know, <laughs> it's, it's funny though. Cause I think, um, it may be that this isn't actively journalistic, but I do think that it is very consciously contributing to a conversation within the queer community and more generally about uh, domestic abuse, you know, I think as a memoir. Yeah, no, of course. And I mean, like, you know, and I remember like having this thought, I don't know if you've ever seen, have you seen the movie Contact with Jodie Foster? Do you? No. What is oh the, my goodness. What it's is this film? Oh, it's, it's this like, it's from the, Oh God, nineties, I think. And it's, it's Jodie Foster plays this like scientist who they hear signals from outer space and they build the spaceship to go um, to space. Anyway, it's not important. There's a part of the movie where she's in space and she's seeing these things that she can't, she's like in a wormhole and she like, and she says they should have sent a poet. It's like this very famous line from contact and because she's like trying to explain it and she can't. And I feel like when I was writing this book, I kept thinking they should have sent a historian because I felt so like out of my element in terms of like converting research into writing. And, and also just, I kept, I kept realizing as I was working, I was like, man, there's a whole book here, but I'm not the person to write it. Like I'm not a historian. I'm not a journalist. Like there's a whole book to be written here about the history of this conversation. And I feel like what I can do is I can like write my book, 
like, you know, coalesce all the like research that I did into like a list of like articles and books that are available and give that to, you know, the world. And then like, hopefully somebody who feels up to it, up to the task, will like be able to write that book. Um, I mean, we, I mean, even though you, you're sort of writing from an individual perspective and in that sense you have, you can say, you know, this is just my story. This isn't the story. Did you feel like you were facing pressure in, in tackling the topic? I'm sort of thinking of both sort of the, the, the main, the sort of mainstream ignorance that you might experience writing a queer story, but also queer community policing, which can also happen around stories that aren't necessarily seen as, um, the right ones for public consumption, if that makes sense. Totally, yeah. Well, definitely an anxiety that I had was what does it mean to present a front of one's own community that, or to present a face of it that that maybe isn't seen commonly or like is sort of quote-unquote like bad PR or like bad press. Um, and that's like a thing that I very actively grappled with writing the book. And I mean, ultimately, like what I, what sort of made me, I guess, feel like I had, figured it out was like, you know, in the sort of the afterword of the book, I, I basically say like, look, like this is just one person's story. Like I am, you know, a like white presenting Latinx woman from a like upper middle class background in the United States. I was born in this year. Like I'm this age, like I, I am such a specific person. And like, I can ultimately only tell the story that I can tell. And like, you know, I think this thing happens when you're writing, when you're writing a book that's like the first or very early in like, or like a piece of art that's early in an existing, in like a canon. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you're like the first like X person to like really talk about something. There's this pressure to be everything for everyone because everybody was sort of omitted before. And then suddenly they feel included, but then they're like, I want you to tell my story. And you can't, you can only tell the story that you can tell. And so for me, I'm like, you know, I want there to be other books that like, I want there to be other books that tells like the perspective, like what does this story look like from like a trans perspective? What does it look like from like a black woman's perspective? Like there's all these ways in which like, I can't give all the perspectives. And so I can just like do what I do. And then like tell people like, now that I've like kind of tried to make this little wedge of space, like, please come in here, like, mm-hmm. you know, come to this little space that I've made and like, we're going to make it bigger, you know? And like, ultimately that's all you can do. And I mean, but that is like scary, right? Cause it's like, I spent so much time writing this book thinking like about all the ways that it could fail, you know, and all the ways it could be insufficient. And like, I'm open to that. Like I'm open to the ways in which this book is a kind of failure or like is, is insufficient because like all you can do is do your best. I think there's a really interesting internal uh, discussion that you're having in the book about this idea of the right time and the right place as well. It made me think, I don't know whether you followed this uh, um, thing that happened a couple of years ago. You mentioned the writer Andrea Longchu in the book. Yes. There was this um, sort of controversy that happened when she, she published a piece in the New York Times called My Pussy Won't Make Me Happy. It, it, it caused some of course, some controversy because there were some people in the trans community who who were sort of saying, you know, this is a really important conversation to have, but it's not necessarily a conversation to have in the New York Times now. You know, this is maybe, you know, this is a space that hasn't really had that many trans narratives yet. And to, and to go for something that is quite personal, unformed, raw thing that you're sharing. I was interested by that 
in relation to your book, because I think you're definitely thinking that through with stuff about queer villainry and... I mean, so it's interesting you would say, so for full disclosure, like I am friends with Andrea. Um, oh, cool. I really love Andrea's work and am really drawn to it and find it really refreshing and interesting because Andrea writes so many things sort of outside of sort of perspectives that I think have become sort of assumed sort of knowledge in the queer community. It's like kind of her project. And so like, I actually remember the first essay of hers that I read that like made me obsessed with her immediately was like that one that she had the, I think it's on liking women. That was an N plus one. Absolutely. Same experience. It's so good. Right. And basically the, it's talking about, you know, in her case, talking about transness and saying like, what if, transness is not about giving yourself some internal thumbs up, but about moving toward desire. And I, as somebody who's always found the like born this way, like narrative sort of in useful, but politically useful, but rhetorically insufficient. Like her version of that with, in terms of transness was like actually really interesting to me. And I was like, man, I've never seen anyone talk, like say this. And it felt really special and really like a really important sort of watershed moment. And then I think that that essay in the New York Times, I also really, I felt the same way. Like I felt like, you know, and, and I and I definitely come down the side of like, I think while I understand people's anxiety for like politically expedient um, uniform narratives and like I understand why people want that, I actually am like that, that's how we ended up with like gay people throwing trans people under the bus when it came to gay marriage, you know, like... Like that sort of political expediency ultimately d- flattens narratives, tells people that their experiences are not real, and like then creates like weird hierarchies. And I find that really upsetting. And and there actually was a similar conversation. I don't know if you followed this at all in the um, science fiction and fantasy community. Uh, oh my god! I, I like I'm like when did that happen? It was so long. The pandemic has destroyed all sense of time. <laughs> at some point. It must have been last year because I wrote about it in a roundup for the end of 2019. But there was this controversy where somebody had written a story called "My um, My Sexuality Is," uh, or sorry, I, sorry, I sexually identify as an attack helicopter, which is like a sort of anti-trans meme. Like that phrase is like an anti-trans meme, and the person wrote this like really like beautiful sort of scream of a story that was like taking that meme. And like writing it out as its own science fictional premise. Mm. And people got, it was really interesting because like people really loved it or fucking hated it. People were saying it's transphobic, even after it turned out that the author of the piece is a trans woman. And people were like, oh, it's because it's using this meme as this like sort of backbone of the story, like it must be transphobic. And it's expressing a kind of ambivalence about identity that like doesn't fit into this mainstream narrative of transness. Therefore, it must be like a, 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 a troll or like somebody who's like making fun of trans people. But as somebody who like, like I'm not trans, but I do have a lot of fluid feelings about my own gender I, I, the story really spoke to me and I was really disappointed and angry at the way people sort of assumed that because it didn't fit in the super neat like structure that they anticipated, you know, about, about trans narratives that like it must be a troll or it must be like transphobic. And I mean, there are right and wrong ways to do things. And like, obviously, like I was having those anxieties myself writing my own book, but I also sort of feel like 
I want there to be like this huge like plethora of like experiences that like don't necessarily speak to each other that like contradict each other because like people are not a monolith and like queerness and transness and gender and all these things are not single experiences and like I don't think saying like I mean if you're like there are so few trans narratives in the New York Times that it's fucked up that she wrote that essay I wasn't saying that (laughs) sorry not you not you but like people saying that who are mad at is the New York Times who published so few trans people that this you know this feels like yeah absolutely like that's the problem the problem is not she felt those feelings and wrote that essay it the problem is that you have is that like we don't have enough trans like these problems are solved or like mitigated by increasing the number of narratives that are out there in the world and that's the and I feel like people will like miss they like miss um aim their anger at like the person writing the thing as opposed to like the culture at large for like making there be so few stories that the story feels outsized you know um sorry that was like a long rant no I really really appreciate it yeah I guess and and is that something that you feel that your that your book has felt outsized it's felt like it bears more I'm sure so many people are saying you know this asking you these questions about like queer domestic uh, violence or the experience of, of queer abuse have you felt the pressure of having to talk on that on behalf of that in an outsized way because of the there are fewer stories Oh, of course, of course. And then, like, the fact that I'm, like, you know, I did a whole book tour where, like, every night I was, like, reading from this book and then, like, talking about queer abuse. I don't know. It's it's hard to make... It, it's, it's a thing you have to kind of think about. I I have now written the book. I did the thing. I had my half of the conversation. And now people get to, like, take it and have whatever conversation they want. And that has nothing to do with me or my book. And I don't have to respond to it. I can... Because I've already done the thing. And they get to you know, everyone gets to have whatever feelings they want about it, respond to it however they want. And that's fine. Yeah. You've been listening to the Granter Magazine podcast. The music was taken from the album First Flights by Trilogue. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps other people to find us. And a reminder that this has been recorded under lockdown conditions. So please be kind if you can.